Thanks for listening to The Gist. If you want to check out an ad-free version and bonus content, go to subscribe.mikepesca.com. It is the best way to directly support our endeavors. It's Thursday, March 23rd, 2023 from Peachfish Productions. It's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Secretary of Treasury Janet Yellen moved markets yesterday when she testified on Capitol Hill. All that I have said is that um, when the failure of a bank is judged by supermajorities of the FDIC board, the Fed board, and myself in consultation with the president, when such a failure is deemed to create systemic risk, which I think of as the risk of a contagious bank run that we are likely to, in, to invoke the systemic risk exception, which permits the FDIC to protect all depositors, and that that would be a case-by-case determination. I understand. I have and that, not considered or discussed anything having to do with blanket um, insur- insurance or guarantees of all points. deposits. The last time I moved to market is when I bumped into a kiosk at the mall. Am I right? I am not right. Is Janet Yellen right? I say she is. I say the markets were stupid to move. Or maybe I'm stupid to buy into the narrative that an anodyne statement actually made markets move instead of a hundred other factors. But were there really financial professionals out there who thought the Secretary of the Treasury would say, you know what? By fiat, I've decided to rewrite a century of banking policy. Now, from now on, everyone's insured forever! Now, in practicality, the government will not vow to backstop all bank deposit losses, but also in practicality, they will backstop bank deposit losses. The risk of contagion is much greater than the actual costs of trying to keep the contagion contained. In any case, the deposits above $250,000 in Signature or SVB were saved and at no cost thus far to you or me. The banking system depends on confidence, and the federal government can lend confidence for free. It's good that some company out there with, I don't know, $850,000 on deposit will put their money in a bank and never think about it, because then they'll be able to meet payroll or pay contractors or keep services going and won't become bankrupt because only $250,000 is insured. The idea that this company would go bankrupt or would not be able to meet its obligations above $250,000 is terrible. And it's much worse than the idea that Peter Thiel gets to keep all his money. Peter Thiel, the symbol, but also specifically Peter Thiel, he looms too large in our assessment of this situation. The thing that the U.S. government has to do now is, as you heard Yellen talking about, determine which banks, if they fail, represent a systemic risk. Now, it's not easy to make this determination, but there is a way to do that. I'll lay out the formula to determine if SIFI, or systemically important financial institutions, sci-fi, sometimes they're called, I'll put it in the show notes. If you're driving, you may want to pull over to follow along as I detail how the experts determine which banks are systemically important. Okay, so first of all, it's all of them. They're all systemically important. That really is de facto the case. Because the bank that's 
under the threshold of systemically important, eh, that bank's failure could very well infect the bank that meets the threshold of systemically important. And then it's an infection all the way down and all the way up. It's like asking, which of these calves do you think we should keep clear of the mad cow disease? And the answer is all the cows. Just like now, it's all the banks. Bovine spongiform encephalopathy is a lot like Peter Thiel's concerns as expressed on social media. Once the disease starts to spread, it's very hard to contain. On the show today, the heckler's veto. It's a heck of a veto, but it's not actually free speech. But first, Bradley Tusk has a background in law and politics. He was on the staff of Senator Chuck Schumer, Mayor Michael Bloomberg, and Rod Blagojevich's staff. He wound up testifying against the former Illinois governor at trial. I don't think Tusk would be insulted if we called him a fixer. In fact, I know he wouldn't. That's the title of his 2018 memoir. Tusk is back on the gist to talk about how he uses his knowledge of regulation and lobbying, not just for corporate clients, but for soup kitchens. In fact, he has an unsentimental approach to charity that I found pretty compelling. I hope you do too. And if you do like it, there's more of the interview with Bradley on the Pesca Plus feed, available for a limited time. Actually, it's got to be quite a long time at subscribe.mikepesca.com. And now, Bradley Tusk. This episode is brought to you by The Jordan Harbinger Show. You've heard me talk about The Jordan Harbinger Show because it's one of my favorites. He does in-depth interviews with some of the world's most fascinating minds. I can name a few. Barbara Boxer, Anderson Cooper, Michael McFall, the Ukraine or Russia ambassador talking about Ukraine. One I recently listened to was Stanley McChrystal, the general, the former general. And he told uh, an interesting story about revering Robert E. Lee. But then, after having a portrait of him for 40 years, he's a 63-year-old man throwing it in the trash. Because his wife says, you know, what that picture and that man means to you, it doesn't mean to other people, and you have to understand that. And then in the interview, they got around to the point where McChrystal talked about that interview in Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much ended his career, where I uh, got to the desk of Barack Obama, and it had McChrystal saying unflattering things about the war effort and just how he talked to his wife and how they decided not to be bitter and not to wallow in. He could have taken some shots at the process, the reporter or the president at that point, but he didn't. It was just an overall good interview. It was facilitated by Jordan's excellent interview style. Whether Jordan is conducting an interview or giving advice to a listener, you will find something useful that can apply to your own life in every single episode of The Jordan Harbinger Show. That could mean learning how to ask for advice the right way or discovering a little mindset tweak that changes how you see the world. Search for The Jordan Harbinger Show. That's H-A-R, like the first three letters in hard, B-I-N-G-E, as in how you'll want to catch up on all the episodes on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. So if you know my interest, and you do because you listen to the gist, I often cover bare knuckles politics. And lately I've been getting into issues of philanthropy, especially because as you know, and I've talked about, we've been sponsoring a refugee family. And I'm beginning to see more and more the overlap. I used to, I think, compartmentalize the two areas as politics is in this one realm and it's about no winners. It's a zero sum game and it's 
tough and rough. And whereas dealing with philanthropy, it's more a better angels of our nature type situation. But you know, for philanthropy or for doing good in the world to really do good, you need to incorporate smart politics. And no one does that better or more openly than Bradley Tusk. Bradley is the CEO and founder of Tusk Ventures and Tusk Strategies and Tusk Philanthropies. And he's been on the show before, but I'll just orient you by maybe just reading some headlines and articles about Tusk. Time Magazine, Meet Tech Startup's Political Mastermind, Tech Crunch. Bradley Tusk is seizing the moment. We're investing, we're incubating, we've got SPACs. Wall Street Journal, how Bradley Tusk went from political insider to making politicians crazy. He's worked in Illinois government. He's worked for Michael Bloomberg. He's worked for Chuck Schumer. And now he works for philanthropies to take what he knows about lobbying and how governments work and make it work for issues like hunger. Bradley, welcome back to The Gist. Hey, man, thanks for having me on. So take us to the government work you do now on behalf of your organizations. We, we do three things out of Tusk Philanthropies, and I'll quickly go through them, and then I'm going to go into hunger because that's more salient for your question. Um, the first is hunger. So we fund and run campaigns in states around the country to pass bills that mandate uh, new funding for hunger programs. So universal school meals, breakfast after the bell, SNAP for seniors, things like that. Um, the second is called the Mobile Voting Project, and we are funding and running the effort nationally to make it possible for people to vote in elections on their phones. And the third is something called Mayday Health, which is an education nonprofit that we helped create after Dobbs came down that shows women in red states how to continue getting abortions via telemedicine. So those are the three things. Plus, I like to say I own a bookstore on the Lower East Side that's essentially philanthropy because it burns money uh, left and right. But um, but putting that aside, and they're all political, almost explicitly, because I think the realization that I had was if you're willing to combine politics and philanthropy the right way, you can really deliver nonlinear results you're way outside of what you'd be able to do traditionally. And look, it ha- comes with costs. I don't get the same tax deductions uh, as if I were just giving away mosquito nets or something like that, because what I'm doing is considered to be lobbying and therefore political and not philanthropic. Um Mobile, I mean, uh, hunger, no one ever really criticizes you for that. But mobile voting, I get the shit kicked out of me on Twitter every day for that one. Um, You have to be willing to take hits and be in the public eye. You have to be willing to forego some of the tax deductions. But if you're willing to do those two things, the ability that you can have to really leverage whatever your idea is, is tremendous. So hunger is a really good example. So I've sort of been interested in hunger since I started college in 1991. Every week I volunteered at a soup kitchen, was there yesterday. Um, and then when I finally left politics and started making money, I started giving checks to the New York Food Bank. And they got progressively bigger and bigger to the point where then donor management, right? They want you around because they want you to keep writing bigger and bigger checks. And so I got to know them a little bit. And my conclusion was lovely people horrifically bad at politics. And so while every year they had bills pending to expand school breakfast, school lunch, you know, distribution of, of leftover food, whatever it was, the bills never passed. And the, the thesis that we had at my foundation was they're not, not passing because it's too controversial, right? This is not abortion. This is not guns. This is not immigration. This is feeding people. But passing any piece of legislation in any legislative body is hard, right? And you need... One, the skill set to do it, and two, the resources to do it. So the question that we were asking ourselves internally is, let's say that 
we took it over. We run these campaigns. I have a team of, of 50 people who do this for a living for everything from my portfolio companies to touch venture partners to our clients to touch strategies. And then what if I'm effectively the client, meaning I'll pay for everything. So I'll pay for the lobbyists, the PR firms, the polling, the ads. Um, if you ran a real political campaign around these issues, could you succeed? And the answer is a resounding yes. We've passed bills in 19 states so far, uh, about 12 million more people, even before we finish out this legislative section, session, which will increase significantly, um, now have access to food who didn't have it before. And most interestingly, about $5 million of my money has unlocked about a billion and a half in annual government spending on hunger programs. So the the ask, though, is not just give us more money. You get in there like you would with any campaign and actually ask for certain programs that act as a multiplier for the amount of money you could raise. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So look, you know, as you mentioned, I spent a lot of time in government. And when I was the deputy governor of Illinois, I ran a full government. So I think I have a pretty decent sense of what government does do well and what it doesn't do well. And I think there's a lot that fit into both categories. You could do a whole podcast just on that alone. But one thing government does well is feed hungry kids, right? We have the mechanisms to do it through school meals and, and schools that are they're already there. It's not particularly expensive. And when kids are hungry, the rest of their school day is a disaster and, and the ROI is total waste. And when they're fed, they still might not turn out to be great students, but at least there's a better shot of them being able to learn. Um, and so it's one of those sort of binary issues where like, it's just an unquestioned good. So the next thing is, if you could use your money to unlock government spending, the ROI is exponentially higher than anything else you can do, right? So when Sam Bankman-Fried got in trouble, I wrote a column for Fast Company, I wrote one of my columns saying, look, you know, yes, I actually do generally believe in the overall principles of effective altruism. And sure, mosquito nets and malaria medication is really important. But you know, it has an even greater ROI, leveraging U.S. government spending for a thing that you care about, because that doesn't require, you know, Bill Gates gives $100 million for malaria nets and $100 million mal mal malaria nets are then sent to Africa. I put in five million bucks for campaigns and 1.5 billion comes back every single year. And so to me, the most effective form of effective altruism is actually finding issues in government that are not particularly controversial, but have not succeeded due to a lack of political skill and resources, provide those things um, and then reap the benefit. Right. And he did get into government, but his was cynical and yours is outcome based. But I know some of the tricks of your trade. Uh, let me say it less pejoratively. I know some of your strokes of genius and what you like to do or what you have done in the past is not just advocate for certainly more money or a different program. You like to create a norm. Like I remember when early on in the Bloomberg administration, you created a norm around uh, picking up after your dogs and leashing your dogs, I believe. And so it wasn't about fines and it wasn't necessarily about new laws. It was, let's just convince people that they're bad people if they don't leech their dogs and good people if they do. And I see a lot of that with what you're trying to do in New York State about feeding the hungry. I guess everyone would say, hey, do you want to feed, uh, not just feeding the hungry, feeding kids. You want to feed school kids? Yeah, sure. But it's something I could vote against without too many costs. But if you create a norm and use your $5 million in lobbying, you'll have a much greater chance of success. So take me inside some of the efforts to do that. So look, th th this is the philosophy that shapes literally all of our activities across the board, and it's simple. Every policy output is the result of a political input. 
99% of politicians are desperately insecure, self-loathing people that can't live without the validation of holding office. It literally fills a hole in their psyche, and they are never, ever going to risk that just to do the right thing on any given issue, which means if you want them to do something specific, you have to make it in their political interest to do so. They have to either believe that if by doing what you want, they got a better shot of getting reelected, or if by not doing what you want, they have a worse shot of getting reelected. If you could convince them of that, you're going to get what you want 95% of the time. If you can't, you're completely irrelevant, right? And so part of the reason why I think politics is often mishandled in this country is people don't really understand the underlying motivations that drive everything. And yes, they're distasteful, but if you just accept them and accept human nature as it is, then you at least have something to work with, right? So in this case, you're right. When it was the food bank for New York running a campaign, you know, the bill may fail, but they didn't have any money and they didn't have any political skills. So nobody would ever know about it. Right. Whereas, you know, just to keep in New York as an example, on Tuesday, both chambers of the state legislature put $280 million in the budget to fully fund universal school meals. 1.4 million more kids would now get access to breakfast and lunch every single day. Um, and we're now running an aggressive campaign. So I've got ads going up today. Um, I don't know if you saw that idiot state senator in Minnesota who said, I've never met a hungry person and it doesn't exist. Did you see the clips of that? Yeah, yeah. I have yet to meet a person in Minnesota that is hungry. Yet today. I have yet to meet a person in Minnesota that says they don't have access to enough food to eat. Now, I should say that hunger is a relative term, Mr. President. You know, I had a cereal bar for breakfast. I guess I'm hungry now. So, so basically, the ad is this idiot talking and then literally Chiron saying, this guy is an idiot. Over a million kids in New York don't have food. Albany, don't be like this guy. Fun school meals. Right. And then, that's by the way, bro, let me interrupt. That's kind of brilliant since negative polarization is like the driving force in America today. You have to find a real villain to really get things going. You found for, one. For, Thank for you. sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And look, a lot of this is the willingness to be able to go negative and hard when you have to. Right. So if there's some state senator in Vermont blocking school meals, um, I'm not just going to criticize the guy about his position on hunger. I'm going to do oppo. And if I find out that he's got a DUI or cheated on his taxes or his wife or anything else, like that's what's going out there, right? Because my point to him is if you don't do what I want, there will be significant political pain as a consequence. Um, and so by bringing that, whether it's sort of creating a norm around it so it becomes politically difficult to not support it or specifically telling a, a politician Things have changed, and if you want to be negative on this thing, you can, but there's going to be a real political cost to it. That's why we've passed about 85% of our bills. Mm. Tell me about the abortion charity, the women's reproductive rights efforts you're doing. Yeah. So, you know, when Amy Comey Barrett was confirmed for the Supreme Court, it, it was clear that Roe was dead, right? Whether it was going to happen a month later or five months later, it was a fait accompli. And I started, so out of my fund, we invest very heavily in digital health. It's, it's our number one sector. And I started thinking about like, okay, what is digital health really? One day, I truly believe they'll be able to perform surgery on the metaverse and whatever else. But right now, all it really is, is I'm a medical professional, you're a patient, we're talking through some kind of electronic device, and then I'm typically prescribing some sort of medicine that reaches you in some way. That's basically what it is. And since we know that 50% of abortions in this country are already performed via medication, and we know that they are 99% safe, and we know that they are FDA approved, the question was, you know, what if we just 
made this available to women in the red states, the, it would be illegal in those states, but how are we really going to get caught? So I remember reading a book about, remember the, the Silk Road on the dark web and that guy yes. Ross Ulbrich, and he cut, yes. so the main, so I read his biography or one of them, and the main thing I took away from it was the, the genius thing they figured out was you can mail people MDMA in the US mail all day long and never get caught. It's impossible, right? And so the state of South Carolina, A, can't track someone's keystrokes, and B, they can't check every piece of mail. And so my view was, okay, South Carolina's not going to like it, but um, what if we continue to make this you know, accessible to women um, and then that it still happens either way? And so Mayday does a few things. One is- so, so to interrupt, it's how Molly was a pathway, how Molly showed the way towards correct. women's reproductive Molly rights. showed the way towards bifepropostone. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, first thing is mail forwarding. So what we do is we show you how to set up a PO box in a blue state that then mails the medication to your home in the red state. So the prescribing doctor is not sending it to Alabama. She's sending it to a PO box in New Jersey or whatever it is. It's then automatically forwarded. So that kind of helps circumvent the rules to a certain extent. The second is connecting you to the providers. There's not a lot of them, but there are some. Some are abroad. Some are in the U.S. Um, the third is making sure that you know how to access your legal rights so that if you are caught for this somehow, and no one has been yet to our knowledge, but still that you can, you know, figure out what lawyers could help you. And then the fourth is work that we're really engaged in right now, which is passing laws in blue states to really legally protect doctors who do this as much as possible so that the red states can't come after them, right? So a state like Texas has said, if you do this even somewhere else, but it affects Texas in some way, you're still criminally negligible or liable, whatever it is. So the shield laws, we have, we passed one in Massachusetts last year. There's one that passed the state Senate in New York uh, about six weeks ago. It's pending in the assembly right now that basically says, look, if you're a doctor in New York providing these services, you're protected. You can't be extradited. You can't be arrested in New York. You can't be tried in New York. You can't be sued in New York. Um, now, look, if that doctor showed up in Mississippi, could they arrest him? Yeah, they probably could. So you're still making a sacrifice to the extent that you think not going to Mississippi is a sacrifice. Um, and there are some places like Charleston and New Orleans that I would miss if uh, if I couldn't, but but overall, but you know Henry, yeah. Henry Kissinger can't go to Belgium now. He might be arrested on world <laughs> international. Right. I don't know how anyone lives without Bel living in Belgium, right? Um, I'm in Brussels at least twice a month, um, and so um, if we can pass these laws, there's a lot of doctors who want to do this. The problem is they're afraid of going to jail, right? And I don't blame them. So the more legal protection we can give them, the more doctors will have doing it. And look, is it possible, like states are now starting to pa pass explicit bans on what we're doing. So does this all end up eventually going back to the Supreme Court? Yes, because the FDA is saying what they're doing is perfectly fine. It's a, it's a legal drug. Uh, and they're saying, no, you're violating the laws of Utah or Tennessee or whatever it is. Um, and look, when it gets to the Supreme Court, will they probably strike it down? Yeah, assuming the makeup of the court is the same. But when is that? Five years from now? Seven years from now? So if in the next five years, we can help tens of you know, millions of women get access, like that's a worthwhile thing to do.
At the risk of uh, being overly blunt, however, let's do some self-examination. The politics that you engage in, which, by the way, your politics generally overlap with mine, but, you know, your clients uh, have been Michael Bloomberg and you work to get Uber legalized in New York and the Andrew Yang, the most progressive end of the Democratic Party, which is often, you know, the noisiest on Twitter, probably doesn't like Bradley Tusk. And is there something about this where I'm sure you didn't care, but now you could really say, you know what, say whatever you want. Yeah, I work for Andrew Yang. We could talk forever about why I think Andrew Yang's policies would help us. Say whatever you want. I'm helping hundreds, maybe thousands of women to access reproductive rights. What are you tangibly doing? I'm helping kids get fed. What are you tangibly doing about that? And you could at least say that to yourself or them. No, I look, generally speaking, so you're right. The left can't stand me by and large. Um, and this is just this terrible system within the Democratic Party of eating your own. Because you know what? If, if I sat down with AOC, we'd probably agree on like 70% of the stuff, you know, but rather than focus on how do we achieve that 70%, she's only interested in how do we fight about the remaining 30%. Um, so number one, I, I think that the way they handle this is counterproductive and foolish. But when I get attacked, well, typically I just ignore it because this is part of the, the the ball game and this is what comes with the territory. But if I do engage, that's exactly what I say, which is, look, you may call me immoral because I help legalize Uber around the country or I've done work in the gambling sector or Walmart has been a client of mine or Mike Bloomberg or whatever it is. I know this. I help feed 12 million people who didn't have food. I have helped women in red states who didn't have access to abortion get them. And the work we're doing on mobile voting, should it succeed, um, I believe will be the single best way to fix our democracy. And by the way, on top of all that, I volunteer at a fucking soup kitchen every Thursday, right? So it does drive me crazy. And by the way, I also pay for all of their operations. So it does drive me crazy when people on the left are so self-righteous and the only thing they ever do in life is fucking tweet. It's totally worthless. Does the fact that I, I read your bio, there are the he, him pronouns, but does the fact that, you know, I think my listeners can discern uh, that your mean is certainly blunt, let's say, I say direct, I prefer it, but that you don't really uh, have or talk in the cultural way that many progressives do, has that at all gotten in the way of the work that you're doing that should be cheered by progressives? It's a good question, right? So I, I think we'll have a good test of that. Uh, right now, the next two weeks in New York. So as I mentioned before, the state legislature put money in the budget to fully fund universal school meals. There will now be a negotiation between the governor and the legislature as what stays in the budget, what goes out of the budget. My hope is that because the, Kathy Hochul is not a monster, she will, of course, fe support feeding kids. But I've also negotiated four state budgets on my, you know, in, in my time in government, so I know how this stuff works. Um, it would be great if the far left said, look, we don't like Tusk, but we like universal school meals. And therefore, on this one, let's work together. Let's make a lot of noise. Let's make it impossible for them to cut this one out of the budget. I would love that. I have yet to see in anything that I do, whether it is access to abortion or hunger or anything else, anyone from the left ever reach out to me and say, how can I help? So far, that has never happened. But are they voting for it, though? If the policies are the policies? Yeah, they'll, 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 they'll vote for it, sure. I mean, but but at the same time, there's, you know, 
it's easy to be a legislator. You just vote for everything, basically, that, that sounds good. Uh, and then someone else has to sort of deal with the consequences. So, yeah, I, I do find it really frustrating that, you know, the Democratic Party spends more time killing each other than they do actually getting shit done. Bradley Tusk, thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. And now the spiel. Yesterday, the dean of Stanford's law school, Jenny Martinez, released a letter explaining why students who heckled federal judge Kyle Duncan were in the wrong and why even a person whose views they don't like deserve to be heard. That these concepts had to be carefully and patiently explained to these students at one of the nation's top law schools actually isn't that surprising. The ethos at such institutions is to challenge as harmful the presence of characters such as Duncan, who, more so than other protested speakers, I'm thinking of speakers of places like Yale or Hastings, who, in Duncan's case, actually did advocate and has issued rulings for what I would consider infringement on freedoms. For instance, he's against gay marriage. He upheld Texas's ban on abortions during the pandemic. He was a major legal player on the losing side of the North Carolina bathroom bills debate slash debacle. Even so, Duncan was invited by the Federalist Society to speak, and so he should have been allowed to speak. But what about my rights, the students argued, by implication, each time they uttered an outburst, which was all the time. Quite a conundrum, a paradox. Who has the right to speech? Actually, not a paradox at all. This, this, this part is what makes Stanford Law School a great law school, or at least a decent law school. They rely on logic, precedent, and cutting through sophistry. The rights of the shouter aren't speech rights. They are getting in the way of speech rights. The dean cited case law. Quote, the state retains a legitimate concern in ensuring that some individual's unruly assertion of their rights of free expression does not imperil other citizens' rights of free association and discussion. That was a case titled In Re K, which I assume was a guy named Enrique yelling, silence is violence over and over, I can only assume. They also cited this actual case. Uh, Enrique was an actual case, by the way. And another case they cited was Frisbee v. Schultz. I can't tell exactly what that was about, but the picture I get is Snoopy with the dog dish in his mouth as if he just snared a whammo flying disc. The dean, Martinez, further pointed out in her letter that the issue isn't only between rights of the purported speaker and rights of the shouters. The law school itself has a free speech interest. Quote, a university is not just a platform for speech, but is itself a speaker with its own First Amendment's rights and prerogatives to edit the message it conveys to students in the world, including messages about the importance of free speech. I thought that was an important point, and one that informs an action that goes beyond asserting that the heckler's veto cannot stand. I do consider officially backing Judge Duncan's right to speech something like Derigor. Of course the law school had to do it, even though it seems in similar instances, similar institutions didn't even commit to that Derigor action. It's a welcomed action, especially in the environment of campus speech as exists today. But the action that did surprise me and hearten me was that Stanford rebuked its own administrator who presided over the brouhaha. Tyrion Steinbach, the Associate Dean for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, spoke at this event. She was called in after Duncan couldn't get a word in edgewise. And three times she asked this rhetorical question. 
Is the juice worth the squeeze? Is this worth it? She went on for several minutes, giving her own speech, cheered and snapped along by the Duncan protesters. She told the judge that his presence represents absolute disenfranchisement of their rights, saying that her job was to, quote, create a space of belonging, and this event was, quote, part of the creation of belonging. And she said to the students that it doesn't always feel safe, but there is always an intention where you can feel fully that you can be here. She went on to note that she believes in speech because it's necessary to combat views such as Duncan's, which are abhorrent and harmful. And she held to that belief even in this time, the time of him actually being there trying to speak. And yet still she asks. And again, I still ask, is the juice worth the squeeze? What is that? I mean, is it worth the pain that this causes and the division that this causes? Do you have something so incredible important to say about Twitter and guns and COVID, that that is worth this impact on the division of these people who have sat next to each other for years, who are going through what is the battle of law school together so that they can go out into the world and be advocates. And this is the division that's caused. When I say, is the juice worth the squeeze? That's what I'm asking. Is this worth it? This is a nonsense principle. It just reframes the issue of free speech as a degree and a half removed from the basic consideration of free speech. Oh, we're not against free speech. We're just against free speech that hurts feelings or advocates discomforting positions or advances an unfavored agenda or, and this is the increasingly capacious catch-all, if it causes harm. Anyway, she's just asking, you heard it several times, is the juice worth the squeeze? Meaning, is it really worth making someone upset? Well, yes, it is. Not because you're making them upset, though in Judge Duncan's case, this did seem a little more gleeful as opposed to a a mere unintended consequence of his speech. He did tape the protesters and shouted back at times, okay, fine. But the whole necessity of free speech protection is exactly for speech that someone will object to. If it's unobjected to, you don't need to protect it. So we have free speech protections for speech that insults leaders or questions authority or is itself authority or is dangerous or is rude or, and this is the one word to overrule them all, is harmful. Dean Steinbeck is said to be on leave. Is she suspended? Stanford would not engage in enough speech to clarify that question. The suspension, or at least the leave, it is a little bit surprising to me. While what she did was absolutely not the full-throated defense of a principle the administration does want to convey, it did uphold the sometimes conflicting principles of the DEI movement, which in practice seems to often ask about harms before it asks about the cost of creating an environment without harms. It must be in a hard position for Steinbeck to be in. Oh, I know it's easy for maybe an outsider to say, it's not that hard. You got to let the guys speak. But think about the culture in which Steinbach operates. It's a culture, by and large, endorsed by a university like Stanford, the DEI culture. It does, in some ways, clash with the culture of free speech that Dean Martinez is espousing. I also bet that Steinbach had thought when she was done that she did a good job that she did right by all constituencies, because Duncan did get to speak. And Steinbeck used her speech to address the protesters' concerns. The event proceeded after she spoke. 
the Pan America or Floyd Abrams or let's be honest, Mike Pesca ideal of what a Stanford administrator should have said, which is maybe to go in and bluntly say, this guy's a guest. He has the right to speak. We note your disagreements, but if you're going to interrupt, you need to leave or be removed. If that's my ideal, I got to be honest, I think that would have been less successful if the goal was actually accommodating Duncan's speech. But then, and all that said, to be very fair to Steinbach, up to this point, I will continue to be fair, but let's also note that Steinbach thought it necessary, or at least she said this. Okay, for a law school administrator to question whether free speech is worth it, even in this case where free speech was obviously worth it, that is simply not proper. So good for Stanford for taking a stand. And now let's allow the objections, even some of the loud disruptive ones, to be heard. Now at this point, I have more to say on the subject, but I might be going on a bit long. I like to keep my spiels taut. One of the ideals of free speech is that there shouldn't be so much of it that you can't remember what was said before. But I did get into maybe a parallel case. And if you are a Just Plus listener, you can hear that on the feed. And that's it for today's show. Corey War is the producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson's the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is VP of Community Outreach for Peachfish Productions. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to advertisecast.com slash the gist. Oomperoo, And thanks for listening. I can't help but take this opportunity to take uh, at least one question. So please, yeah. Ah, wait, hold on here. Decorum, right? That was the word we were using, decorum? Uh, yes, sir, familiar face. Hi. Trent Crim. <laughs> Fake journalist. Yes, sir. <laughs>